Hey, uh, good morning. And um, yeah, so that responsive reading that we just read uh, was from last week. And it was basically a doxology, Paul's doxology, an expression of just how great and majestic God was. That, that when Paul, he considered God's sovereignty and ultimate plan for uh, mankind, for the salvation of mankind, he was just absolutely blown away by how perfect and how complete God's plan was. And that in this plan, it included a special portion for the Jewish, for Israel, for the nation of Israel. But also it, it was extended to the Gentile Christians and as well. And, and the great and amazing part about all of this was God's plan for salvation for mankind is that he did, he did this he, by maintaining his righteousness while displaying his grace while still remaining faithful. And so somehow God in his magnificence, in his omnipotence, in his all knowledge, um, he was able to maintain all of his divine characteristics and his attributes while still finding a place for all of us in the kingdom of God. And it is in light of this realization that Paul, he breaks out in this song, in this dexology, he, he breaks out in worship of God. And that is why the doxology that we just read in our responsive reading is an expression of just how powerful, how knowledgeable, how unstoppable God is. And it is in light of this worship that Paul, he now is going to exhort the church in Rome and to, and to push them, to push them to, towards application you see, sometimes, and this is important for us, because sometimes when we pray, when, read the Bi- when we read the Bible or when we hear sermons, a lot of times we can feel conviction. And I think that's a great and good thing because this is the Holy Spirit um, working in our hearts, working in our souls. And this is um, one evidence, one emotional evidence that we have of God speaking to us. But what we're going to see is that conviction is just not enough. Though we feel conviction, though we feel guilt or remorse for our sin, that in of itself is not enough. But what is required, what should happen once we have this revelation of how God, how great God is, what should happen is action. What should naturally occur after conviction is action. What should occur after revelation is application. And so after 11 chapters of just intense theology, Paul starts shifting his focus more towards practical things, towards action, towards steps and mentalities that we should put on and do. And we actually see this reflected in the language that he uses. Prior to chapter 12, Paul uses a lot of indicatives. He uses a lot of run-on sentences to to, to try to um, capture God's theology. But in chapter 2, from here on, we're going to see shorter sentences. We're going to see imperatives. We're going to see commands. And, And what this reflects is that he is now, after he's done instructing after he's done some informing from here he's going to shift his focus towards application towards action 
And what we're going to see in, in this is that in starting from chapter 12, his goal is to live, a, is to exhort the Christians in Rome to live a renewed Christian life. So this is Romans chapter 12, verse 1. And so he just finished his doxology. He just finished his expression of spontaneous worship in the midst of his um, theological explanation of, sal- of the salvation of mankind. And therefore, he says this, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, the NASB translates uh, this, the, the word mercy as a singular noun, but, but if we look at the Greek, it actually is plural. So, uh, so when we look at um, Romans chapter 12, verse 1, it's, it's, it should say in the view of God's mercies, multiple mercies, in the view of God's abundant and many and overflowing Mercies, and, and this is absolutely fitting when we consider God's mercy for Israel, God's mercy for Gentiles, but also God's mercy for us, for all of mankind. Because God is not just merciful in His patience of, uh, with our sin by withholding His wrath. God is not just merciful in His forgiveness of sin and allowing the punishment of such sin to be deferred to Christ and not for us to receive it. God is also merciful in opening the salvation to Gentiles while also remaining faithful to Israel. He is merciful in our daily lives. He is merciful by putting food on the table. Though we have work, He gives us the opportunity for us to have our jobs to go to school and ultimately all blessings and all riches and all food and all these things, all the blessings that we have ultimately flow from God to us. He is merciful by providing us this church, Grace Chapel, for Mosin Presbyterian Church of Orange County. He is merciful by providing us this community for us to grow closer together and build fellowship with one another. He is merciful by blessing us in ways that we can't even imagine, in ways that we aren't even aware of. God is so merciful. And in light of all of these mercies, Paul exhorts you to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is the call to action. This is the application that Paul shifts from theology to action. And this is, and by offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, this is how we worship God. Now, the idea of animal sacrifices goes back to the idea in the Old Testament of Levitical priests where they had to slaughter animals so that their blood would appease God's wrath for the sins of Israel. And if you read the process, it's pretty gruesome. In some examples, you have animals, they, they needed to be cut directly in half. In other, animals, or in other examples, um, the, animals, the throat of the animals had to have been slit and let, and let the blood just kind of drain out. And for them to take that blood and then sprinkle it on the altar, it's, it's pretty gruesome. Now, when Paul says for us to offer our salvation or our bodies as licking, living sacrifice, it, it's just a metaphor. There's, there's no expectation for us to actually kill ourselves, right? There's no expectations for us to uh, cut our bodies in half or, or to slit our throats and to, and to sprinkle our blood onto the altar. But rather, what it represents is a command to give all of ourselves, to give all of our being to God, to holy living, to give our mind, our heart, and our soul 
to God. There is no compromise in this renewed Christian life that Paul is advocating. So what does this mean? Our, our spiritual act of worship is more than just coming on Sundays. Our spiritual act of worship isn't just reading the Bible every day. Our spiritual act of worship isn't just the times we pray. Our spiritual act of worship of giving our bodies as a living sacrifice manifests in what we do every single day. How we treat other people, how we love other people throughout the week. It manifests specifically also in our minds and the way we think about things and the way that we approach life and the way that we make decisions. And we see that in verse 2. Paul says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's, what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. And so Paul, he advocates for here for intelligent, logical, uh, rational worship. And, and so that kind of sounds intimidating, right? Because it seems as if we need to be super smart in order to worship God. But that's not true. That's not what Paul is saying. Instead, Paul is inviting all of us, the church of God, into a continual exploration of truth. To constantly test, to see if the motivation of our action is approved by the will of God. Since you offer your body as a living sacrifice, you are to put your old life to death, your life of sin to this death. And therefore, you do this by renewing your mind, by fighting against temptations, by fighting against sin, by actively in your mind, in your heart, and in your actions, choosing righteousness, to choose goodness. What this requires is for us to daily, actively retrain and therefore renew our mind to break the old habits that we are so accustomed to. So your actions, your thoughts, your motivation for doing things, you have to, you have to spend a lot of time thinking and exploring. Why? What is, what's the motivation behind why I'm choosing this over this? You have to constantly test your actions and to see if it measures up to what God's values are, what God wants for you in your life. And therefore, when you measure yourself, when you measure your intentions, when you measure your heart, it is through this process of testing your uh, motivation that you can honestly approve for yourself that it aligns with God's values and therefore it aligns with God's will and therefore that's how you approve that this decision and this thought process that you went through is approved by God's will. And once you do this, you can have complete confidence in your life, in the decision that you made, knowing that it is absolutely God-honoring. And you don't have to second-guess your intentions. You don't, don't have to second-guess, oh man, am I doing this? Is this the right thing to do or is it not? Because that doesn't matter anymore. Because what you've done, what you've just participated in, is this testing of a proof. And through the, you've just gone through a process of testing your own heart and your motivation and your will and, you, and you've measured it against God's values and therefore you've, you're trying to determine whether it is approved by God. 
And so, if it, and, and after you go through this process, if it doesn't align with God's values, if it fails to be approved, then you probably shouldn't do it, right? And this is the process that Paul is inviting us as Christians into. It's this lifelong process of self-learning and self-exploration with God. Now, the question that we might have as Christians is, well, how the heck do I know what God's will is? Well, I would say that we would know God's will by knowing who God is. And, and we know who God is by first and foremost reading scripture. We can also know who God is through prayer. We can also know who God is through seeking counsel from other brothers and sisters in Christ who are striving to live holy and righteous lives. You cannot know what God's will is for your life if you do not know God, if you do not spend the time learning about Him, learning about His values, learning about how He operated in the Old and New Testament, how He operated in your life. You cannot know nor discern God's will for your life if you have no concept of this. You must spend time with God. You must study who God is. I think one of my, um, you know, uh, when I was growing up in high school, uh, one of my pastors was saying, you know, um, every day I study my wife because I want to make her happy. And, and that's kind of the picture that I get when it comes to my relationship with God and how we as Christians should, should um, conceptualize our, our, our relationship with God. It's this idea that we should study God, we should know what makes him happy, what makes him sad, and, and we should know what, um, what he desires, and, it, and it's something that consumes us day in and day out. You cannot gain discernment or the ability to approve God's will without this deep knowledge of God. And this is going to help you as you move forward in your life. Because what happens? What happens when something bad happens to you, right? What happens when you lose your job? What happens when you get enough? What happens if you get into an accident? How do you know that in this whole mess that you are, that in the storm that you are in, how, do you, how are you able to discern what God's will is for your life in that moment, right? It is by having this firm foundation of knowing who God is. And when you make big decisions in your life in regards to like what job you should take or, what, or, or, or whether you should move or, or, or whatever big decision that you may have, how do you test it? How do you make your decision? How do you test what, um, whether one decision is better than the other? How do you prove it? To see if it is in line with God's will. And you can only do it if you stand firmly in what God has already made available to us. And that is through God's word. It is through his prayer. And it is through this community. Through God's church. Right, and so what are some examples? Like, let's say um, you have like, I don't know, 10 vacation days and, and you have this opportunity to either go on vacation or to go on a missions trip, right? And so how do you discern what is in line with God's will for you in that moment, right? 
You've got to explore why is it or what is your motivation to go on a vacation? What would be your motivation to go on a missions trip? And then you cross-reference that with like scripture and with like God's values and you say, look, what would be, what would bring God honor? What would deepen my relationship with God? Would it be going on this vacation or would it be going on this missions trip? And it is through this process that we are testing ourselves and therefore approving it to see whether it is in line with God's will. Another example is, uh, you know, how we should respond if we get into a fight with our parents, right? You know, um, and do would, uh, whatever decision we make, how we choose to respond, you know, we've got to ask ourselves, is this in line with God's values? If um, would apologizing, would apologizing be, um, uh, does that fit in line with God's values? Would that be God honoring? Or would it be better if I sit down with my parents and we talked about it without getting emotional or getting angry and we set some boundaries? Would that be more God honoring? Would that fit in more with God's values? And so as you can see, it kind of depends on whatever situation and context it is. But the one thing that does not change is the process of exploration of measuring our, 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 our motivations um, by measuring the impact of our actions and asking, does this fit in line with God's values and what he wants for me in my life? And is it God honoring? That does not change. And so there is an exhortation and an encouragement to take on this mentality, to renew our mind. And ultimately, the motivation for us to pursue and to desire a holy and righteous and godly life is the gospel. In light of God's love, in light of His mercy, in light of His sacrifice, our response should be one where we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. That we give ourselves to this process of worship by testing and approving what God's will is for our life. And so in verse 1 and verse 2, Paul exhorts the church in Rome to live and to pursue and to engage in this daily struggle, this daily exploration of, of seeking God's will. And through this exhortation, he sets the scene to clearly lay out specific activities that we can know, that we can definitively know is pleasing to God. And the first area of very practical focus that he decides to introduce is the church. Because verse 1 and 2 is kind of top heavy, right? It's kind of like from a high in the sky is kind of conceptual. Like what exactly does that mean? But what Paul does now from verse 3 on is he provides very specific examples for us to hold on to, for us to grasp and, and for us to internalize so that we can live it out in our lives. In verse 3, he says this, 
For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. (coughs) The very first thing that Paul does is to remind the church to be humble. And this makes sense. He just spent an entire chapter outlining to both Jew and Gentile how neither are privileged, that both are more similar than they are different. They are both live under salvation by faith, that nothing is earned in either of their salvations. And that in fact, that the salvation has, is something that God himself has distributed to the Israelites, has distributed to the Gentiles. And it is in this distribution of faith, right? Not salvation by works, but something that God gives to Israel and the Gentiles uh, that Paul touches on the topic of predestination, right? Because it is the one that God has determined who shall be saved and who shall not be saved because he is the one who's distributing this faith to these people. And that the salvific, the, the salvific faith that you have is something that God has foreknown. It is something that he has planned and is something that God has done and chosen from the very beginning of time. And so Paul's appeal to unity, Paul's appeal to being humble is focusing on predestination, is by pushing the focus of salvation on God and not so much man. And by doing this, what Paul does is he tries to exhort that church to be united, to function as a team, to work together. Think about, and, and let's, say, let's say yes, like you guys are different because you are. You are ethnically jewish you are ethnically gentile you guys have different cultures and you and but let's admit the fact that you guys are different but the fact that you are different doesn't have to be a point of separation but rather it can make you stronger in verse four to five it says this for just as each of us have one body with many members these members do not all have the same function so In Christ, we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul, he launches into another metaphor here. He exhorts the church to be one body, to be one team, to be one unit, and he encourages them by saying their differences actually make them stronger and it serves a purpose. And the purpose we see in verse 6 to 8, that we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then generously Then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. And so what we see here is Paul is rapidly listing several gifts of the church, several spiritual gifts uh, for the church of Rome. And the idea behind this is that we all have gifts, right? It's not that some don't ever have a gift, but every single person who is part of this church, every person to whom God has extended grace, to whom God has distributed faith to, um, every single one of us have a gift. And our job is also to identify what gifts we have to use them to build the church, to foster the community. Now, the list that Paul provides is not exhaustive. 
in verse 68, this list that he, that he um, uh, describes is not exhaustive. It's not meant to be complete description of all the spiritual gifts that people might have in the church. But it is a good starting list to work with. Prophecy, service, teaching, encouragement, giving, leading, mercy. And so I wanted to briefly go through this list and to provide descriptions so that you, the, you people in this church, can dis- see which descriptions fit your personality, fit your traits, fit your giftings, and which of these uh, descriptions are the gifts that God has, been, has given to you, has distributed to you, and which are the ones that you might want to develop. And in this way, as you discover and as you search and as you look for, okay, which one of these gifts might I have? That once you identify these gifts, that you can then use that to build this church, to build this community and this fellowship. So first is prophecy. Most likely refers to foretelling things of what is to come in the future. Um, and we see that Paul has done this, right? Because he in verse um, in chapter 11, he's done some um, prophecy. He's looked into the future, some eschatology um, and and, but also prophecy is providing direct messages from God. And I think it's kind of interesting that he prefaces this uh, with in accordance with your faith. He, he prefaces the gift of prophecy in accordance with your faith. And, and he does this too. And he doesn't do this with other spiritual gifts in this verse. But it's also, but it's almost given as a word of caution, this, this tag of in accordance with your faith. And to me, it seems as if Paul is encouraging, yes, he is encouraging people to prophesy if they have this gift. But he is also trying to say, hey, make sure that it is proportionate to the faith that they have. So um, what, what that implies is that not everyone should prophesy, right? Not everyone should be trusted. But those who fit this criteria, who give those who prophesy in the proportionate amount to the faith that and presumably uh, presumable stability and proven character that they demonstrate in their daily lives. These are the people who should prophesy and these are the people who you should listen to in terms of the gift of prophecy. Now, uh, most likely, many of us probably don't have the gift of prophecy. It's, it's pretty rare. Now, service. Service refers to the role um, um, probably of the deacons in the church, right? These people are the ones who are great with execution. They can get things, things done and are trustworthy and reliable. If you ask them to take care of something, you know that they'll be able to, do, they'll, they'll be able to follow through uh, with this well. Personally, I think Grace has uh, the gift of service. All right, next is teaching, is what I do on Sunday mornings, right? This is what I do on Sunday mornings. This is what Caleb and Serena and Kelly do for Bible studies. It's, it's conveying the gospel and God's word as faithfully as we can. We, we spend the time studying scripture and we love it and, and we do it. And, and, and once we do, um, we, are, we are entrusted with the with the responsibility of conveying God's truth and his values and his word as responsibly and faithfully as we can. So that's, that's pretty obvious. Uh, I feel like we all know where that fits in. Next is encouragement. Encouragement has to not only do with comforting people when, when they're feeling down or sick or going through a rough time, but it also has to do specifically with pointing them to God. It has to do with having the ability to provide a word of encouragement or providing a Bible verses that is super on point super impactful super meaningful to a person right and and they may not have like the in-depth scriptural knowledge that a teacher might have but they're very very good at encouraging others with it and through prayer 
right? And, and um, we've been kind of doing this in the small groups on Fullerton when we sort of do devotionals where, you know, we, we look at a verse and we talk about how that verse has impacted us in our lives, right? It doesn't require a ton of, um, it doesn't require a ton of in-depth scriptural knowledge, but what it does is you're, you're conveying and you're encouraging others with saying, look, this verse fits into my life in this way. And man, God really spoke to me in this way. And so serene, you might have the gift of encouragement. All right, giving on, um, then moving on, it's giving. Giving most likely refers to financial offerings. But, you know, some people are really blessed with this gift, uh, even if they aren't the most financially wealthy people in the world. Um, my, my uncle is like that. He's a really good gift giver. Uh, he loves giving gifts. There are times when he randomly sends me a tie or something like that from Korea, uh, but he especially loves giving gifts to the people in his church because he's a pastor there. And he, and he loves to buy them food. He loves to buy them shirts or, or, or books that they might need for school. And he does it cheerfully. And he does it with sincerity. He does it generously. So that's the gift of giving. Then there is leadership. Now, this kind of has to do with vision casting. It has to do with planning the next steps for the church, making tough decisions, rebuking those who need to be rebuked. And this is often the role of an elder. And finally, we see that Paul lists mercy. This, is prob- this probably has to do with those who have a particular sensitivity to those in need. Those who visit the sick, those who are really passionate about things like homeless ministry. So that. Uh, is most likely what Paul means when he talks about mercy. So, so hopefully, as I've given you a short description of these gifts, this gives you an idea as to how to think about the gifts that Paul lays out here, which ones you specifically identify with. But it's also important to know that one gift is not better nor greater than the other. Like, let's be honest, some of the gifts get more spotlight than the other. For example, the gift of teaching. I get more spotlight because I'm up here and I'm preaching to a group of people. I get more, yeah, I just get more face time with people. But my gift of teaching is not more important than the gift of service, than the gift of encouragement, than um, the gift of mercy. It is instead, uh, we should have a more holistic perspective and see how all of these gifts are actually very valuable, important, and necessary, and they all serve their purpose in building up the body of Christ. And I want to just do like a quick thought experiment. Like, Like if we were to go to a church that was filled with a bunch of teachers... Like, can you imagine what that would be like? Like, it would be miserable. It would be so terrible. Like, every week people would be debating and fighting and arguing with me that, like, I interpreted the passage incorrectly and that I'm, you know, like, it would be terrible. Or what about a church filled with those just with the gift of mercy? I think um, they do a ton of good in the community, but without someone with the gift of leadership or the gift of service to help uh, plan or to execute, it may only last for a short time. Every gift is important. Every gift balance each other's out. And so my question to you is, which gift do you identify with? So today I encourage you all to first consider renewing your mind. To test your heart, to test your motivation, to test whatever action or decision you make in contrast to God's values and whether or not it is God honoring. Renew your minds by grounding it in God's word. Renew your minds by testing it with God's will. Set yourself apart by thinking differently from the world. Rather than 
having worldly values rather than making decisions based on the values that the world has instilled in you. Set your mind free by leaving your old self and your old sinful habits and the values of the world by actively replacing that with God's word and his values and daily fighting against it. And one very practical thing that we can do right now in the process of renewing our minds will be to actively search in the church. Renew our minds by seeing what gifts God has given us, by, by looking at what gifts God has distributed to us and using that to build and grow and serve His church. So we're going to have a time of prayer. We're going to have the worship team up. And we're going to invite God to to reveal to us His will. We're going to do some testing right now. Okay? So let's pray. God, we invite You to challenge us, to convict us, Lord. Um, In our daily lives, Lord, may we take on the mentality where all of our decisions, all of our thoughts, all of our actions are first um, we, we, we send it through this process of testing where we ask, God, is this God honoring? God, is this pleasing to you? God, does this fill it, fit your values? But also specifically when it comes to this church, what, what spiritual gifts do we have? And what areas, what needs in this church do you, are you calling us to serve in? So Lord, help us. Help us activi- uh, to identify what values we have or what, what gifts we have. Help us to find those things so that we can hold on to them and start developing them within the context of this church. Amen.